So this uh, sermon that we've called Under Fire is uh, really talking about uh, the time just after the healing of that man. Uh, the man who we don't really have a name of, but he was uh, obviously lame for uh, 40 years at least. We know is um, uh, over 40 is what it says in Scripture, but that's kind of a round number, and um, it's hard to know for certain. Um, I had one theologian said that um, he believed that the man had been uh, lame for 38 years, and he thought that was a pretty important uh, uh, number. Uh, he came up with it and he had a, a reason for that. He searched the scriptures and found that uh, the number 38 kept popping up. And um, I'm not really big into doing that sort of thing. I, I'm content with just um, having scripture tell me that it was over 40 years. But it's interesting that um, there were some, some things that were happening. And you're going to find out that there's, um, there's a primary question that's being asked here. And the, and the question being asked is, is who is our enemy? Who is the enemy of the church at the time? And who is our enemy? Who is pulling the strings. Um, at this particular moment in time, the primary enemy is being seen as the Sadducean aristocracy, the Sadducees that controlled the Sanhedrin. These are the people that were in power uh, when Jesus was uh, tried, found guilty, and then sent to the cross for punishment. Remember, this is only about maybe at the most 75 days after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and only about maybe 10 or 15 days after the ascension of Jesus, and the then following on the, um, uh, uh, the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and filled the believers. So all this is really fresh and visceral in the memory and the life of the church. And so that being said, um, that's sort of the basic, uh, the basic enemy that we're dealing with. We mentioned before that more than likely Luke was using this account along with his gospel as a, as a legal record of the movement of Jesus and then the apostles after Jesus died on the cross. And, you, and the reason why we say it's probably a legal document used to help in Paul's defense in front of the emperor is because the primary enemy that's being um, talked about in both Luke's gospel and the book of Acts is the Jewish leaders, and particularly the Sadducees, but in general, the Jewish leaders. They're the ones that are always stirring up trouble. They're the ones that are always complaining. But what you see in, in only the, in the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts is the Romans are actually not portrayed in a negative light. They're not lifted up and put on a pedestal. They're not talked about as being the, great, the greatest thing since sliced bread. They are not talked about in a negative light, which would have been important if it was going to be used in a document that would have been uh, for Paul's defense and before the emperor. Um, so we have that sort of there. We see the, the Sadducean aristocracy is the primary enemy that we're seeing this. They are members of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin had 71 active members, but in order to make anything happen, I think they needed about 25 people for a quorum. So we don't think that the entire um, Sanhedrin was called in there. It would have been just the, um, the quorum folks, the, the folks that were in power, the ones that were making the decisions that would have probably been in hand, on hand here. And this sort of uh, brings up the question of the other political parties, right? I know in a time of uh, political upheaval that we're sort of going through in our own country, um, our mind tends to be on politics. And, and as I see happen almost at the end of almost every election when we have a, a changeover in, um, in 
in party power in the United States, there's always talk that's bandied about about starting a new political party. I'm not one of those people that feels like that's necessary. I think that we need to do the best we can to uh, put more Christians in both parties now um, because I think that's the, the challenge that we're running into is is the lack of a Christian voice um, in any of our political parties. Uh, but either way, back in the days of Jesus, there was no difference. There were three um, uh, major powers that were um, contending, if you will, for the, 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 the spiritual and political mind of the people. Um, the one that was in power and had been in power during the days of Jesus and then leading to his death was the Sadducees. But you also had the Essenes and you had the Pharisees. And I don't want to get too much into the histor- history of this. You can do that on your own. Uh, but the Essenes were the ones that just basically said, you know, we're out of here. We don't like any of these parties. Uh, we think you guys are all wrong. We're going to go live on a mountain by ourselves and we're going to ignore the world. Probably not the best plan. And then you had the Pharisees who were seen as as the uh, legalists, the ones that were trying to keep the country sort of together and focused on God's word. And it's interesting that in the early church, um, according to the records that we have that aren't found in scripture, these are the early church records of, of people that were writing but just weren't, they weren't, they weren't spirit-filled writing. They were just people writing about the church. And it, and it comes to, comes out that a many, 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 many um, converts to the Christian faith in Jerusalem were the Pharisees. They were the ones that knew the law very well. They were very content with the miracles and the mystery and the majesty of who the Christ was supposed to be. And when they identified him as Jesus, they naturally followed him in um, to that. We see Joseph of Arimathea and several others um, that were prominent Pharisees that came to know Christ as their Savior, such as Nicodemus, um, who was mentioned in John's Gospel. So, that being said, um, we have several, um, uh, several lines of ideas here. Now, we're going to turn to the scripture. I'm going to read uh, the first, uh, maybe... Um seven verses, and then we're going to break it down, and then we're going to go from there. So, starting in the first verse, chapter 4, we see that Luke records, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they had laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Ananias, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John and and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. And And when they had placed them in the center of the room, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Now I want to stop there for a second because just there's a lot that's there that we need to pack, unpack before we uh, get going. I find it interesting, we had mentioned on Wednesday night about the second sermon of uh, Peter, and it was interesting to be able to sort of drill down on that and that proto-message. Well, we know that proto or that um, that primitive gospel message we call a, um, a kerygma, um, which was the, the basic nuts and bolts of salvation. We talked about that. That was sort of the thrust to Peter's sermon, but 
I often wonder what would have happened if Peter had had a chance to just keep going, you know? Like he had the opportunity to keep preaching. You say, what do you mean by keep preaching? Didn't he finish his message? Well, not really. Uh, because you see in verse 1, right there in chapter 4, it says, as they were speaking to the people, the priest came and arrested them. They didn't get a chance to finish. I often wonder what would have happened if he had actually finished that, that message. I mean, the Holy Spirit was obviously moving. Uh, we find out later on in this chapter that uh, the number of people that were a part of the church had grown to 5,000. That's, what, 3,000 from the first uh, go-around at Pentecost, and then another 2,000 after this individual got healed. So we got 5,000 people. That is a huge church. That is a huge number of people by anyone's standard, and definitely would have caused a ruckus in the temple um, grounds as that many people were gathering together to hear more about this individual named Jesus. And we see that the uh, the, the priests and the uh, and uh, came up with the captain of the temple guard. Now this is kind of a big deal. A lot of people say the captain of the guard. You know, we, we don't often have a lot of respect for mall cops. Uh, I don't know why. I guess they're good people. Um, I don't know anybody in particular that does that, but you know, everybody wants to do the best job they can do. Um, but a lot of people look at the temple guards since they had no real authority outside the temple mount, and really they didn't have much authority within it either because the Romans were the uh, ones that had the ultimate authority in Jerusalem and, and in uh, Judea, the whole region. And so we often think these guys are like the mall cops if of uh, the temple. But that's not necessarily true in this instance, and in particular with the captain of the, uh, of the temple guard. This was a position known as the Sagan, or the Sagan. And this particular individual was the right hand of the high priest. Most people that fill that role in the history of the church um, at that time would have been the person that would have been chosen to be the next high priest. And so every single thing the high priest did, this guy was right beside him. And most people recognize that when the captain of the temple guard spoke, it was as though that the high priest himself was speaking. And as far as the Jews were concerned, since they had no king on the throne, the closest thing they had to ultimate authority in the, in the nation of Israel that they respected was the high priest. And so this guy was an incredibly powerful individual, and it meant a lot that this guy of such prominence and power was the one that was there to arrest Peter and John. And so we see they came, the temple of the guard came up with the Sadducees, and there was a great disturbance we see in verse 2, um, because they were teaching the people. So here's the thing. There was, there was those problems, right? The power structures that were, that were there were, were, were upset. They were disturbed. They didn't know how to handle and respond to this. So they responded the only way they knew how, with uh, implied violence and uh, forceful incarceration, which you see oftentimes happens in countries and governments when they don't have another answer. And what were they afraid of, right? What were they really concerned about? They were concerned about three basic things. The first thing was the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Second thing was this concept of author of life, prince of life that Peter had used in his sermon a few, um, uh, just a few minutes before they got there. And then, of course, the implication that Jesus is the new Moses. Now, we're going to break those down a little bit so we can see where we're coming from. But in short, what we're talking about is utter and complete revolution. And those that are in power that had been uh, working and collaborating with the Roman government, this would have been incredibly uh, challenging to them. They Everything that they had, they, they were threatened to, to have to give up to be able to, um, if they were a part of this rebellion. And they weren't willing to do that. It brings my mind and attention back to the foundation 
founding fathers of our nation. Every single one of our founding fathers were incredibly wealthy, were incredibly intelligent, were, were part of the power structure, and when they made the decision to sign their name to that document saying they would no longer live under that kind of a, a, an authoritarian rule, they essentially signed their own death warrant and they essentially signed over all of their wealth, all of their land, everything that was theirs in a hope that they would win this battle and that God would be on their side. Um, these men who had that same opportunity at that moment chose instead to go the opposite direction. Um, it makes you wonder about the history of our nation and our, and, and our fathers and it also makes you wonder a little bit about what's happening now in our government and what we as a nation of, of Christians living within a nation that is largely unchristian and what we have to do and should do. I'm not preaching or fomenting revolution, but I think that we need to be in prayer over the coming years because um, there's uh, there's going to be some changes. And I am I am one that's definitely concerned about um, the future of the church in America. So, that being said, uh, they were disturbed. They were disturbed about the concept of the resurrection from the dead. Why were they so upset about this? Well, this comes back to the fundamental theology of the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in any way, shape, or form that there were miracles that were recorded in the Bible. They were, in their mind, strict conservatives, but in reality, they were the most liberal individuals there was. They did not believe in any of the writings of the, um, of the prophets. They didn't uh, read any of the writings of the historical documents like Joshua, Ruth. Um, they specifically from, uh, shied away from Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, all of those different guys. They focuses, focused only on the first five books of Moses. And even within that, they tended to overlook and to dismiss any discussion of angels, demons, heaven, hell, life beyond the grave, none of that stuff. They were strictly, this is all you get, one life, one go, and you're done and any talk of mysticism, miracles, or supernatural anything was something that threatened their power structure. And so the concept of talking about the resurrection was something that would have caused every one of them to just get incredibly squirrely and uncomfortable. And the fact that they couldn't deny that Jesus rose from the dead was something that irritated them even more because the worldview that they had um, was inconsistent with the world that they lived in. And so this was, a, this was putting a problem on on it. And this whole concept that Jesus was the was the prince of life or the author of life, as we had mentioned last week, um, was something they couldn't deal with either. Now, understand this, and I think this is incredibly important. All scripture that we have, um, and we know this because of what Timothy, what Paul tells Timothy, that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for correction, instruction, and righteousness, uh, reproof, all that stuff. Um, that all scripture is breathed out by God, and this includes the writings of Paul, Peter. James, John, all the guys, even Luke, even the book of Acts. And so um, this is not just coming to us because we wanted a book of history. This is scripture. This is um, stuff that's here for our edification. And because it's that way, all scripture has three basic importances. We have a historical component and a historical importance. We have a spiritual importance. And we have a practical one. So we've talked a little about the historical. We know that there is a spiritual component because obviously by the power of God, the Jesus rose from the grave. The Holy Spirit came down to give testimony of that. He lived and breathed for um, uh, for 40 days after the resurrection, and then he ascended into heaven. And so we have the spiritual nature here, and that was kind of causing the the Sadducees to have these heebie-jeebies. And now we have the uh, we have the um, 
the other component of this, and that is the practical side. And this is how we apply this to our, our regular day. And I have to say that the things that were um, concerning to the Sadducees who were in power at the, at the day of time of Jesus, Peter, and John is the same, the things they were afraid of are the same things that the power structures in North America now are, fear, are afraid of. They're afraid of the power of the resurrection. They're afraid of the concept of the author of life. They're afraid of the idea that there might be a new Moses out there wanting to lead the people to freedom from slavery. These are constant themes that people like ourselves as Christians ought to be talking about. But I tell you, you want to you put a silent, uh, make a room go silent really quick? Just start talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, just walk into any room anywhere and just start talking about the fact that you believe that Jesus bodily rose from the grave and he walked and talked for, for 40 days on the earth and then ascended into heaven that he's the Son of God. You do that, and I guarantee you, you won't be able to hear a pin drop in that room as everybody starts to process what you've said. Unless, of course, you're in church, right? Because in church, everybody talks about that. We love to talk about Jesus being the, uh, the Messiah here because this is where it's at. But you, the see, thing is... The, the world is very comfortable with us talking about it right here in this room, right? We want to talk about it in this room, but they don't want us to talk about it anywhere outside this room. It's like it's okay to be a Christian in your house. It's okay to be a Christian in your garage as long as you keep the doors shut. But once you open those doors and start proclaiming out that message to the world, that's when it gets a little dangerous. That's when it gets a little scary. Because what we're talking about is true freedom. And the world doesn't like it. We keep having shackles of slavery placed upon us every time we turn around. And it seems like the most concurrent time, we, there's always reasons for it, right? And, and I found that a lot of times, people will willingly put themselves into slavery and bondage. You say, Pastor, we don't do that. We would never put ourselves in slavery and bondage. Really? Think about it for a minute. Do you have a phone? And if you do, is it within reach of one of your hands? You're a slave, my friends. Not saying we should throw our phones away, but this is one of the areas that we get trapped. We get pulled into bondage. Not just that, everything else. We go to jobs to make more money. Why do we make more money? So that we can spend more money on stuff we don't need. Stuff that they tell us that we have to have. And so in order to have this stuff, we now have to have uh, jobs that, that earn more money to maintain the things that we have and then to buy more stuff. It's a never-ending cycle. And that's the capitalistic world. We go into other parts of the world, they don't even have those nice labels. And where our, our shackles may be velvet-lined, other countries aren't the same. I'm telling you now, this idea of true freedom that the resurrected Lord of life has to offer is something that's beyond anything we can comprehend. There won't be any screens in heaven, right? We won't need them. We'll only need Jesus. And so this message that he is preaching and teaching um, then has just as much relevancy today as it does and it causes the powers that are to be just as afraid today as it did in the days of Peter and John when they were preaching it. And so they were thrown into prison. I don't have any idea what was going through the minds of Peter and John during that night. The first time that any follower of Christ was ever put into jail was the day that, that was that evening when Peter and John were put into prison. And I can only begin to imagine what they talked about. Um, I don't feel like there was any fear. I almost feel like if you look at some of the other times that the apostles were thrown into jail, that there wasn't a whole lot of fear there. I don't think that they were afraid at all. I don't think that they used that as an opportunity to be concerned. 
I think they were using as an opportunity to praise the name of Jesus because he had already told them that they were going to have persecution. And then he told them that when he leaves, he's going to give the Holy Spirit to them and the Holy Spirit's going to cause everything he said to come back to their memory. And I have no doubt that they're sitting there and probably John is saying, you know, Peter, Jesus said this was going to happen. And Peter's going to say, yeah, you're right. I do remember that conversation. He did say that we were going to have these problems and we were going to be persecuted. And then at that point, it would have confirmed the message even more. Not that they needed it, that they were in the right place at the right time doing what God wanted them to do. And so the next morning, they came. They were pulled out of jail. They were hauled into the court. They were thrown in this large room with this sort of horseshoe event going on with the chairs all around it. And, and all the guys were sitting out there looking at the, the two guys that were standing in front of them. Kind of like what I'm doing now. And that's kind of scary if you think about it. Um, especially if you weren't prepared for it. But Peter and John were incredibly prepared for it because they had the Holy Spirit, right? And the very question they asked him was, by what power or in what name have you done this? Now, when you ask that question, have you done this? That's a, that's a plural word. And it's sort of a play on it. John or Peter or Luke is trying to, to give us the idea that they want to know what power and authority they've done this, as in speaking the, the, the message that they're speaking, having that, um, uh, that, that following that has come about. They want to know about that. But they also want to know about this whole healing aspect. When and how and why did this healing take place? And these are people, again, that don't believe in the miraculous. So they're trying to find a way to poke a hole in this to keep this from happening. And then verse 8 happens. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. That's verse 8, right? Verse 8 is the pivot point in this passage. The Bible says then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Was filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Does that mean that the Holy Spirit had left him and that he needed to be filled up again? Does that mean that we as Christians don't have the Holy Spirit all the time? Because Peter obviously was the first. And if he doesn't give it, does that mean we don't get it? What is happening here? That is a really good question. That particular word there is used quite a bit in the book of Acts. And we're going to see it come out quite a bit. The word there is plato in Greek. And what it means is to be filled, having just been filled. It's a, it's sort of a, a, a not, it's like an active word. It's sort of present tense. And it's, it says having just been filled up. And the image there is to pour into a cup to the very edge and rim. And so you can just see the liquid peeking up over the top, but that that, that that tensile strength of the liquid is holding it in the cup. It's to fill it as full as it possibly can be filled right up to the very edge. And so we see that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now why is that important? I'll tell you why that's important. Because, oh, because Jesus promised in Luke chapter 2 that when, when they were hauled in front of magistrates and judges and the Sanhedrin to answer questions about him or about what they're doing, he, was, he told them directly, and this, this is from Luke chapter 2 verses 11 and 12, he says, don't worry about what you're going to say, I will put the words in you, the Holy Spirit will teach you what you need to say at that moment. At that moment, in Luke 21, verse 15, Jesus again reaffirmed this by saying that I will give you a mouth and wisdom which no one can contradict or stand against. And they were standing on that. They were standing on that power and that moment and the promise that Jesus gave. And the promise hasn't changed. 
The promise is still there. We just have to tap into it. When was the last time we actually asked the Lord to fill us up full and then use us? See, you have to remember now, there is this initial infilling. When you accept Jesus Christ, your Savior, the Holy Spirit comes in, seals you for salvation. You're now part of the children of God. You're part of the kingdom. You can call God the Father. And if you want to continue on that lifestyle, you're more than welcome to. But that's not where God wants you to live. He wants you to start life there, right? I mean, everybody loves a baby. Don't we love babies? Sure we do. Babies are cute when they're one and they're two. But if somebody's crawling around wearing a diaper at 32, it's not cute anymore. It's sad. And so God never intended us to stay that way. The Spirit is there to teach us and help us grow and to be able to guide us through that progressive sanctification as we move forward. And there are going to be times in our life, and if it hasn't happened to you, you need to ask yourself why. If there are times in our life where God is specifically going to put you in situations where your only recourse is to pray and ask him to fill you with his spirit, that Plato kind of filling where it fills you all the way up and then you just start spouting Holy Spirit, not nonsense words, but Holy Spirit inspired and Powered words and deeds that will do nothing but glorify God. Every time we see that the Holy Spirit fills somebody up in this capacity, it's always to accomplish a task they couldn't do on their own. Peter, if you read in the other parts of the New Testament, when you first start to see Peter, all the way up to the death of Jesus Christ, he was a very weak, wishy-washy individual that was constantly causing problems for himself. But at this moment, you see Peter having just preached two powerful sermons now standing in front of the most powerful human beings other than the Roman Empire in this city. These people could quite literally have him killed or imprisoned the rest of his life just like they did Jesus. They had him killed, not in prison for life. They could have done that. And as the father and, and husband and leader of his household, imagine what Peter's family is going to go through if now Peter spends the rest of his life in jail. How are they going to be able to get by? This has to go through his mind. We know Peter was married. We know that he had a mother-in-law. And we also are pretty, pretty, pretty convinced that Peter had children. And if that's the case, this had to go through his mind. But he pushed that aside, allowed the Spirit of God to fill him, and then he spoke, not with his authority, but with God's. And he just simply said, rulers and elders of the people. He's giving him some credit. He's calling him elders of the people. He's giving them the idea, the understanding, you are the rulers, but you need to know God is so much more. And then he begins to lay out another sermon. And we don't have time to see this morning to, to really dive into this whole sermon. We're going to do that on Wednesday night. Um, so I encourage you to tune into that broadcast as we look at Peter's third sermon, a little mini sermon, if you will. But I want to focus your attention on the verse 12. Verse 12, and I'll highlight this a lot more on Wednesday, but verse 12 talks about there is salvation salvation in no one else for there is none other none other under the name of heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved that word saved there is an amazing word 
um, the word actually is a play on salvation and healing all at the same time. Um, and it's a beautiful, beautiful word. The word there is sozo in Greek, okay? And so it gives both the image of physical healing as well as spiritual salvation. And it's incredibly important. But that particular phrase is what freaks out every single person that's not a Christian in the world today. It's okay if you want to be a Muslim. You can be a Muslim and practice your faith all day long. It's okay to be a Buddhist and practice your faith all day long. Heck, if you want to be any type of religion you want, you can. And if you want to be a Christian, you can too. Just you can't talk about Jesus Christ in the public scene. Because the moment you start talking about Jesus Christ, you start bringing salvation and healing and freedom and redemption and all of the lessons and all of the things that nobody in the in the public specter um, section wants you to know. And this is what it is. This is the level of exclusivity that only Christianity brings. That salvation can only come from one person, that's Jesus Christ, for no other name under heaven can be uh, uh, by which is given among men by which we must be saved. We're talking about Jesus and Jesus only. This is really difficult for men many people that stand outside of the Christian faith. They say that we are closed-minded and that we are um, exclusionary in our theology and we're not welcome, we're not well, uh, open to other people's ideas. I'm open to anybody's ideas except for when it comes to how to get to heaven. There's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter was saying. Now, verse 13 uh, we get into um, the discussion, the response. The Sanhedrin is looking at Peter and John, and they understand that Peter and John are uneducated and untrained. So the two Greek words there are agramentos and idiotos. Okay, and I know you don't really care about agramentos, but if I call anybody here an idiot, you're going to be really, really upset with me, right? Um, well, that's exactly what they sort of are saying about Peter and John. They're saying that they're illiterate. That's what agramentos means. They can't read, and they're idiots, morons, fools. And how can we possibly be listening to them? Now, I find it interesting that when you talk about Peter, James, John, the rest of the guys... So many times, um, we look at them as being idiots, untrained, illiterate, Galileans, right? But I encourage you to be careful about forming our opinions, whether in the New Testament or the Old. I encourage you not to form your opinions based upon what the enemies of God say about the followers and worshipers of God, but instead look at what God actually says. God empowered these men, gave them all authority. He says, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit that's going to teach you all things. You are my followers. He even says in one gospel, he says, you're no longer my servants. You are my friends, right? He elevates those guys up to a status that is far greater than any, any uh, literate or intelligent or, or amazing individual this planet has to offer. God himself elevated these people. The only people that called these people stupid were the enemies of God. So we need to be very cautious about that. That happens both in the Old Testament and the New. We see people oftentimes putting down the people of God, but it's not God that's doing it. We let God castigate those that need to be uh, chastened, but not the people that are the enemies of God. And so the enemies of God say that Peter and John were uneducated and untrained men. And they were amazed and began to, um, but they began to recognize that but there was something different about them. That Jesus was something important. Verse 14 says, Seeing the, men who were the man who was healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply to Peter's mini-sermon. And then we get into verse 15 
through um, about verse 17. And we see that that's when they start to, to deliberate among themselves. They want to sort of squash this, right? There's, that's when the warning comes in. It's in the, the estimation of the rulers and the powers that be that they were untrained, illiterate, and they also were dangerous. And in that dangerous place, they needed to do something about it. And so they, they, they deliberated among themselves because they're the rulers, and they were concerned. They needed to do something, but they couldn't just outright kill these guys because there were 5,000 men followers outside wanting to know what they were doing with the guys that just brought them, brought them Jesus Christ and gave them the Holy Spirit. And so they're, they're, they just can't just kill these guys. They've got to do something. They've got to, they've got to do something. And then verse 19, it says, Peter, or verse 18, it says, When they had summoned them together, they commanded these guys, James and John, to no longer speak or teach of all that, um, at all in the name of Jesus. I can tell you now, there's a lot of things that I'll put up with with our government, a lot of things that I'll put up with um, uh, in our culture and our society, but the one thing I can't do, one thing I'll never be able to do, is stop preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. The only way you're going to be able to do that is to have me killed. Because even if you put me in prison, I'm going to keep preaching. Um, one of my favorite uh, heroes, if you will, of the faith is uh, by name, a guy by the name of Richard, Richard Worm, Wormrand. Wormrand? I can't always pronounce his last name. He is the founder of, uh, uh, of an organization that has uh, reached out throughout the whole world called Voice of the Martyrs. Um, when I was in uh, one of the schools that I attended, uh, one of the missionaries... Um, that was attending school there was also part of that organiza organization. And the work he did to bring the Word of God into third world countries and into closed countries was absolutely amazing. Whenever we would get into class and he would be there and tell his stories of, of smuggling Bibles under the radar into China or um, smuggling Bibles into, into Cuba was just something that I was incredibly fascinated by. And every time he left the United States, he kissed his wife and kissed his kids because he didn't know if he was going to come back. And his kids and his wife didn't know, but they were content that they were going. They were doing what God had called them to do. You know, I tell you, it, it's it takes a strong person to look to look the powers that be in the eye and say, you know something, forget you. I'm going to follow God regardless of what you say. And that's exactly what Peter and John did. They had their, their three Jewish boys in the fiery furnace moment. They had that moment where they stood up to every most powerful person they could, and they just simply said, forget it. We're going to follow God. It says, whether, um, look what their response is. Whether is, it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you, or rather than, rather than to God, you be the judge. But we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. And, and then you see that there's this threatening that happens again. Um, he goes, and then when they threaten them further, they let them go, finding no basis which to punish them. Now, I know it sounds kind of funny here when you read this in the English, but if you read it in the Greek, it brings out so much more, um, uh, so much more of a contrast. In the Greek, when you read this, the, the, the rulers that are saying to them, you know, don't preach anything more about Jesus, and, and then follow on, it says they threaten him some more. It's, it's written in this sort of a weak, washed, sort of like a, like, um, a washed out sort of, I don't know, it's, it's kind of hard to explain it, other than to say it's just timid, right? It's like, please, please don't preach anything more about Jesus. But when the apostles stand up, when, when, when Peter and John stand up and give their speech, in the Greek, it's like bold, and it's definitive, and it's, it's, it's like, ah, you know? And you can see the difference between, please, sir, please stop talking about Jesus, and I can't stop talking about Jesus, you know? It's that beautiful moment.
moment that's there. And then they, they, they just walk out of there knowing that they're on the side of right. Um, verse 22, it says that this man was more than 40 years old on whom the miracle of healing had been performed. And when they left that room, they were glorifying God for everything that had happened because they knew, they knew that God was in control of their life. Verse 23 starts up, and this is where we're going to start winding down the sermon as we close out. But it's important for you guys to see verse 23 and beyond. We won't be able to read all of it. We're not going to be able to dive as deeply into it. I'm hoping that we can uh, do that in Mike's Sunday school class um, a little bit more. But this is sort of the response, right? This is the response. After Peter and John had this huge, spiritually high, mountaintop experience, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. I have no doubt that there was still some of that, that residual filling that was in them as they left, glorifying God. They had, the, they had a new convert with them. They had a guy that used to be lame that's now walking with them and hanging out with them. We have 2,000 more folks that wanted to know more about it. But what did Peter and John do? They went to their closest companions. Look at verse 22 says that after it happened, uh, when they had been released, they went to their own companions and told them everything that was going on. They went to their house church. They went to their core group of believers. And they explained what happened. And when they heard this, they being the church, when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God in one accord. That's that Greek word again, homothumadon. One accord, one-mindedness. Everybody that heard this, that was part of that small group, that was part of that, that, that small house church, not the 5,000 that, that had joined the church a few days ago. We're talking that small group, maybe no more than 100 people, maybe Maybe 120 that was originally gathered in that upper room. There was that small group and they told them and they all lifted up their voices and began to praise the name of God. You know, one of the things that I dislike about the modern church is the emphasis and the focus that we have. And I realize that there's a purpose behind it. We're coming here to get, um, to get spiritually fed. We... We have a pastor who's been trained and been anointed by God to, to, to bring the spiritual food. That's what we're trying to do through the Word of God now. And we all sit there in the pews and we stare up at this guy and we say, please feed us. And then and he does his best to do it. And then we, we soak it up. We eat as much as we can. And then we close our Bibles. We, we, we put our wraps around it. We tuck our pens away. We get up out of our chairs and we march over to our cars and we head off to our lunches and everything else. And very little impact is made in our lives, right? We don't really do much with it. When was the last time you left a church service shouting and praising the name of Jesus Christ? When was the last time? And I'm not talking about just walking as you're walking down the stairs, getting ready to go out the front door, looking for your coat, thinking about um, the snow outside, wondering, do I have the right shoes on? Can I run to the car real quick? Will it mess up the shine on the bottom of the top of my leather shoes if I get there? And, and if I don't get there soon, am I going to miss my favorite seat at the restaurant that I love to go to right after? Oh, we, we think about those things, right? But how many times do we leave the, the house of God so pumped up, so excited, so filled with the Holy, God, Holy Spirit that we want to just immediately praise and glorify the name of God? Probably never. That's not exactly what these guys did. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were excited. They were praising. They were doing all kinds of neat stuff. But there was something else they were doing. Look what it says in verse 24. It says, They lifted their voices to God with one accord. What does that mean? They fell on their faces and prayed. When was the last time we as a church just prayed? I mean, we do a lot of preaching, we do a lot of praising and singing, we do a lot of other things. There's the social aspect, you know, we feed people, we, 
We help folks out when they need wood. We do all kinds of things for people. But when was the last time we as a church just said, we're going to dedicate this hour to prayer? We're going to dedicate this hour to nothing but praise and prayer. I remember when I was a kid, one of the things we used to do on every fifth Sunday in the church, which happened, what, maybe four times a year, um, we would have we would have a praise and prayer time. And instead of having our regular Sunday night gathering, we would just gather together, and instead of preaching and teaching, all we would do is just sing as many songs as we could, and in the midst of it, people would just stand up out loud in the congregation and just start praying. And I tell you, it was the most powerful thing. I talked to an individual this week who said that they um, uh, have been struggling with some things. And they're Christians, they love Jesus with all their heart and soul, and they decided they just wanted to, um, they just needed something to do after they got off work. So they got off work, and instead of sitting down in the chair, turning on the football game, or whatever it is they wanted to do, um, they instead chose to sit down in that chair, leave everything else off, all the distractions put away, and they just spent time praying. And they began praying for every single thing that God brought to their mind. And the fellow said that he didn't know how long he had prayed, but when he was done, he felt a sense of relief. He stood up from his chair, went to his bed, slept like a baby that night. Because he had spent all that time in prayer. We as a people don't pray enough. We don't pray at the right times. But there's something else that was going on here. Not only the people's response to the prayer, but look at the individuals who, Peter and John, what did they do? They came into the fellowship of their, their fellow believers, the friends, the, 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 the fellow warriors of Christ that they've been fighting this fight with for the last three and a half years, the ones that all saw Jesus, they knew who he was, they understood his teaching, they, they were friends and, 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 and co-workers, they were, they were, they were shield mates. And, and what, did, what did they do? They shared their heart. It was one thing for the people to respond in prayer, but it was another thing for Peter and John to say, guess what, guys? We just got arrested. When was the last time a Christian said that at church, right? Probably never. You say, well, in this case, they were right to be, they were right to be arrested. And it's a badge of honor. Yeah, maybe it is, but you know something? Not everybody gets arrested. They do it because it's the right thing to do. And just because this was a spiritually high moment doesn't mean that every moment that we have in our congregation is one that's high and strong. The point is, Peter and John were going as they were coming down off of the spiritual threshold and they were sharing their heart with their friends and their friends were gathered around them. Whether it was a good share or a bad share, they were there for them. That's something that we've lost in our church too because we're no longer living life with each other. We're living life in front of the world. We're living life with anyone that will walk along beside us, but we're not living life with our church like we need to. You wonder why we're not unified, why we're not focused together. It's because we don't want it. Unity scares us. It requires something from us. It means that we have to do something, right? Now the people prayed. They prayed a prayer that was powerful, right? They prayed a prayer, a prayer that, would, that would move them. Look what it says in verse 29. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your slaves, your bondservants, may speak your word with confidence and boldness. Verse 30. While you extend your hand to heal and the signs of wonder take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus Christ, give us the boldness to speak your word. That's what they prayed. And then verse 31 happened. While they, were playing, while they were praying, the place that they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled 
with the Holy Spirit. It's that word Plato again. They were all filled up to the max. And they began to speak the word of God with boldness. Boldness. You know, this is where we're at today. This is the, this is the message that, that Christ wants to give us. He says that if we will pray, if we'll focus, if we'll decide to choose to serve Him over anything else in this world, if we will focus our attentions and follow Him as a church, we won't be able to be stopped. Imagine what would happen if we gathered together and we started praying with such power and such conviction and such presence and the Holy Spirit just invested our prayers with such an amazing spirit and sense of rightness that it was so powerful and so moment that the whole building began to shake. Now, you can say, well, you know, we do live in Alaska. There are earthquakes that happen every day. Maybe it's an earthquake. Well, yeah, maybe it would be. Maybe there was an earthquake in Jerusalem. But it doesn't really say it was an earthquake. It says that the building they were in was shaking. It doesn't say the rest of the, the, the city was shaking. Just that one building. I believe that when the power of God descends fully, things happen. Buildings are shaken. Lives are changed. People are filled and transformed. Imagine what this little town of Kenai, Alaska would look like if we as a small little church that we are were to be completely filled with this kind of power, this kind of authority, that when we are gathered together praying, the entire building shakes. But it doesn't say they said, wow, that was a great shaking moment. Nowhere in it does it say that, that everybody that was in that room signed book deals about the day the building was shaken. None of them went on television and said, you'll never guess what happened when we had that building shake. It wasn't about that. It wasn't about lifting themselves up. It says that as soon as that happened, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak the Word of God with boldness. Boldness. Church, that's what we need to do. We need to pray up so much that we have no choice but to speak His Word with boldness. And when we do that... People will listen. Churches will grow. Lives will change. That's the power. Now, some of you guys are sitting here today, either online or, or in the building, and, and, I, and you're wondering, you know, well, that's great for people that are Christian, but I, I don't have that same sense. You know, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ, your personal Savior, if you've never had a moment where God just gripped a hold of you and let you know that, that if He were to let go of you, there was no doubt in your mind that you would die and go to hell because of your sins. If you've never had that moment where he has wrapped his loving power around you and just held you close to and whispered words of love and forgiveness in your ear, then you don't, then you don't want to miss that. It's an powerful thing to have the creator of the universe reach down from his throne and encircle you with his loving arms and call you his child. That is something that everybody deserves. The early church in the early 1900s used to call the concept of salvation to be gripped by a power of love and affection beyond explanation. Now that's kind of a long-winded way of saying to be saved. Whatever you want to say it, however you want to describe it, the truth is that all men need salvation. All men need God. The Bible says all of sin fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible also says that there is uh, the wages of sin is death. If we do not accept Christ as our Savior, our only reward is hell. If we choose to accept Him as our Savior, we can move into eternity knowing, because the Bible says, I write these things unto you that you may know that you know that you have eternal life. There is a definite way to know that we have Jesus in our life and in our soul. And when we step before God in, in heaven, when we stand before Jesus in the gates, and we say, 
you know, I want to come into heaven and he's going to look at us, you know, he want to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into my rest. We don't want to hear him say, I don't know who you are. And if you're not sure that Jesus knows your name, then I guarantee you, you can get that right today. The beautiful thing is, as, um, as uh, many preachers have said over the years, and as the Bible eloquently quotes in John, it says, For God so loved the world, the world meaning you, me, everyone that's in it, past, present, and future, that he gave his only begotten Son, and whosoever will believe on him will not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. So I can tell you this, if you don't know Jesus Christ your Savior, if you've never accepted him, if you don't know where you're going to go when you pass away, I can promise you, you can get that taken care of today. You can get that taken care of right now. If you're watching online, I encourage you to look at our website. We have um, a plan of salvation laid out. But as I've mentioned this before and many times, especially in our video format, if you're watching this right to the very end of this message and you just didn't pop on and then pop off, but if you've watched all the way through, there's a reason why you're watching it. There's a reason why God has, has stayed your hand so that you didn't turn away or get up and get a bag of chips or, or turn into something else that was more interesting. It's because God is offering you the opportunity for salvation if you'll accept it. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior and you're still watching this, I guarantee you something else, that there's somebody in your life that's been praying for you and you know who they are. And if you don't wish to reach out to one of us here in, in First Baptist Kenai, if you don't want to send us a private message, then I encourage you to reach out to somebody you already know who's a believing Christian in your life and ask them what it means to be saved. And don't put it off till Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday when you're going to see them. Call them right now. For the rest of us, if you're in here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, the altar is going to be open. For the rest of us that know him and know him well, I encourage you to use this altar to its best advantage, and that is to find out what God is calling you to do today with the message that he's presented you. Uh, for the, those of us that are going to be um, here face-to-face, uh, -face, we're going to be moving into our Sunday school room in a few minutes. Um, we're going to have our music played. For those that are watching online, when the final song is done, um, you are released. Again, we thank you guys for coming. We want to encourage you um, to move as God has, has encouraged you to move. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll finish out our time here. Father, we love you, and we thank you. We ask this now. We ask... Um that you will guide us, Lord, in, in our study in the book of Acts. But we know that we weren't able to deal with every single part in this passage, all 30-something verses. But we, Lord, we know that every single verse has power because it's, it's breathed into existence by you. Father, we ask that you will allow the words we've preached and talked about today to fill our heart and our minds and allow us to move as you've asked us to move. Lord, I ask you to give us the strength and courage to stand firm in your word. And Lord, those of us that are, that are Christians, that believe in your word, Lord, when the time comes, when the, the powers that be, the magistrates, the judges, the police officers, whoever it is, stand before us and command us no longer to preach in your name, Lord, that you give us the strength and the boldness to do just the opposite. Lord, to stand up and follow and serve you regardless of the cost. Lord, for those, of, um, for those that might be watching or in this building that don't know you, Lord, do not let them leave here today or let the sun set before they get their heart right with you. Again, Lord, we love you and we thank you. We put all of these things in your hands. We ask this now in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I appreciate you guys for coming. We're going to go ahead and worship um, and go with God this week.